0: Treasure Island, Disc 3 Chapter 12 Council of War There was a great rush of feet across the deck. I could hear people tumbling up from the cabin and the forecastle and slipping in an instant outside my barrel. I dived behind the foresail, made a double towards the stern, and came out upon the open deck in time to join Hunter and Dr. Livesey in the rush for the weather bow. There all hands were already congregated. A belt of fog had lifted almost simultaneously with the appearance of the moon. Away to the southwest of us we saw two low hills, about a couple of miles apart, and rising behind one of them a third and higher hill, whose peak was still buried in the fog. All three seemed sharp and conical in figure. So much I saw, almost in a dream... "'for I had not yet recovered from my horrid fear of a minute or two before, "'and then I heard the voice of Captain Smollett issuing orders. "'The Hispaniola was laid a couple of points nearer the wind, "'and now sailed a course that would just clear the island on the east. "'And now, men,' said the captain, when all was sheeted home, "'has any one of you ever seen that land ahead?' "'I have, sir,' said Silver.' "'I've watered there with a trader I was cookin.' "'The anchorage is on the south, behind an inlet, I fancy,' asked the captain. "'Where, oh, yes, sir? Skeleton Island, they calls it. "'It were a main place for pirates once, "'and a hand we had on board knowed all their names for it. "'That hill to the norard they calls the Foremast Hill.' "'There are three hills in a row running southward, four main and mizzen, sir. "'But the main, that's the big un with the cloud on it, they usually calls the spyglass, "'by reason of a lookout they kept when they was in the anchorage, cleaning. "'For it's there they cleaned their ship, sir, <laughs> asking your pardon.' "'I have a chart here,' says Captain Smollett. "'See if that's the place.' Long John's eyes burned in his head as he took the chart. But by the fresh look of the paper I knew he was doomed to disappointment. This was not the map we found in Billy Bones's chest, but an accurate copy, complete in all things, names and heights and soundings, with the single exception of the red crosses and the written notes. Sharp, as must have been his annoyance, Silver had the strength of mind to hide it. "'Yes, sir,' said he. "'This is the spot, to be sure, and very prettily drawed out. "'Who might have done that, I wonder? (laughs) "'The pirates were too ignorant, I reckon. "'Ay, here it is, Captain Kidd's Anchorage. "'Just the name my shipmate called it. "'There is a strong current runs along the south, "'and then away nor up the west coast.' "'Right you was, sir,' says he, "'to haul your wind and keep the weather of the island, "'leastwise if such was your intentions as to enter and careen, "'and there ain't no better place for that in these waters.' "'Thank you, my man,' says Captain Smollett. "'I'll ask you later on to give us help. "'You may go.' I was surprised at the coolness with which John avowed his knowledge of the island, and I own I was half-frightened when I saw him drawing nearer to myself. He did not know, to be sure, that I had overheard his counsel from the apple-barrel, and yet I had by this time taken such a horror of his cruelty, duplicity, and power, that I could scarce conceal a shudder when he laid his hand upon my arm. "'Ah!' says he, "'this here is a sweet spot!' "'this island, a sweet spot "'for a lad to get ashore on. "'You'll bathe and you'll "'climb trees, and you'll hunt "'goats, you will, and you'll get aloft in them hills like a goat "'yourself. Why, it makes me "'young again. I was going to forget "'my timber-leg, I <laughs> was. "'Ah, it's a pleasant thing to be young "'and have ten toes, and you may "'lay to that. When you want to "'go a bit of exploring, you ask "'old John, and he'll put up a snack "'for ye to take along and clapping me in the friendliest way upon the shoulder, he hobbled off forward and went below. Captain Smollett, the squire, and Dr. Livesey were talking together on the quarter-deck, and, anxious as I was to tell them my story, I durst not interrupt them openly. While I was still casting about in my thoughts to find some probable excuse, Dr. Livesey called me to his side. He had left his pipe below, and being a slave to tobacco had meant that I should fetch it. "'but as soon as I was near enough to speak and not be overheard, "'I broke out immediately. "'Doctor, let me speak. "'Get the captain and squire down to the cabin, "'and then make some pretense to send for me. "'I have terrible news.' "'The doctor changed countenance a little, "'but next moment he was master of himself. "'Thank you, Jim,' said he quite loudly. "'That was all I wanted to know, "'as if he had asked me a question.' "'And with that he turned on his heel and rejoined the other two. They spoke together for a little, and though none of them started or raised his voice, or so much as whistled, it was plain enough that Dr Livesey had communicated my request, for the next thing that I heard was the captain giving an order to Job Anderson, and all hands were piped on deck. "'My lads,' said Captain Smollett, "'I've a word to say to you. "'This land that we have sighted is the place we have been sailing for.' Mr. Trelawney, being a very open-handed gentleman, as we all know, has just asked me a word or two, and as I was able to tell him that every man on board had done his duty, a low aloft, as I never asked to see it done better, why, he and I and the doctor are going below to the cabin to drink your health and luck, and you'll have grog served out for you to drink our health and luck. I'll tell you what I think of this, I think it handsome, and if you think as I do, you'll give a good sea cheer for the gentleman that does it. The cheer followed, that was a matter of course, but it rang out so full and hearty that I confess I could hardly believe these same men were plotting for our blood. "'One more cheer for Captain Smollett!' cried Long John when the first had subsided, and this also was given with a will. On the top of that the three gentlemen went below, and not long after word was sent forward that Jim Hawkins was wanted in the cabin. I found them all three seated round the table, a bottle of Spanish wine and some raisins before them, and the doctor smoking away with his wig on his lap, and that, I knew, was a sign that he was agitated. The stern window was open, for it was a warm night, and you could see the moon shining behind on the ship's wake. "'Now, Hawkins,' said the squire, "'you have something to say. Speak up.' "'I did as I was bid.' "'and as short as I could make it, "'told the whole details of Silver's conversation. "'Nobody interrupted me till I was done, "'nor did any one of the three make so much as a movement, "'but they kept their eyes upon my face from first to last. "'Jim,' said Dr Livesey, "'take a seat.' "'And they made me sit down at table beside them, "'poured me out a glass of wine, "'filled my hand with raisins, "'and all three, one after the other, "'and each with a bow, "'drank my good health.' "'and their service to me for my luck and courage. "'Now, Captain,' said the squire, "'you were right and I was wrong. "'I own myself an ass, and I await your orders.' "'No more an ass than I, sir,' returned the captain. "'I never heard of a crew that meant to mutiny, "'but what showed signs before, "'for any man that had an eye in his head to see the mischief "'and take steps according. "'But this crew,' he added, "'beats me.' "'Captain,' said the doctor, "'with your permission, that's Silver, "'a very remarkable man.' "'He'd look remarkably well from a yard-arm, sir,' "'returned the captain, "'but this is talk. "'This don't lead to anything. "'I see three or four points, "'and with Mr. Trelawney's permission I'll name them.' "'You, sir, ah, the captain?' "'It is for you to speak,' says Mr. Trelawney grandly. "'First point,' began Mr. Smollett, "'we must go on, because we can't turn back.' "'If I gave the word to go about, they would rise at once. Second point, we have time before us, at least until this treasure is found. Third point, there are faithful hands. "'Now, sir, it's got to come to blows sooner or later, "'and what I propose is to take time by the forelock, as the saying is, "'and come to blows some fine day when they least expect it. "'We can count, I take it, on your own home servants, Mr. Trelawney.' "'As upon myself,' declared the squire, Three, reckoned the captain, ourselves make seven, counting Orkin's ear. Now about the honest hands. Most likely Trelawney's own men, said the doctor, those he had picked up for himself before he lit on silver. Nay, replied the squire, Hans was one of mine. I did think I could have trusted Hans, added the captain. And to think that they're all Englishmen. "'broke out the squire. "'Sir, I could find it in my heart to blow the ship up.' "'Well, gentlemen,' said the captain, "'the best that I can say is not much. "'We must lay to, if you please, and keep a bright lookout. "'It's trying on a man, I know. "'It would be pleasanter to come to blows, "'but there's no help for it till we know our men. "'Lay to and whistle for a wind, that's my view. "'Jim here,' said the doctor, "'can help us more than anyone. "'The men are not shy with him, and Jim is a noticing lad.' Hawkins, I put prodigious faith in you,' added the squire. "'I began to feel pretty desperate at this, for I felt altogether helpless, "'and yet by an odd train of circumstances it was indeed through me that safety came. "'In the meantime, talk as we pleased, there were only seven out of the twenty-six "'on whom we knew we could rely, and out of these seven one was a boy, "'so that the grown men on our side were six to their nineteen. Part 3 My Shore Adventure Chapter 13 How My Shore Adventure Began The appearance of the island when I came on deck next morning was altogether changed although the breeze had now utterly ceased we had made a great deal of way during the night and were now lying becalmed about half a mile to the southeast of the low eastern coast Grey-coloured woods covered a large part of the surface. This even tint was indeed broken up by streaks of yellow sand break in the lower lands, and by many tall trees of the pine family out-topping the others, some singly, some in clumps. But the general colouring was uniform and sad. The hills ran up cleared above the vegetation in spires of naked rock. All were strangely shaped, and the spyglass, which was by three or four hundred feet the tallest on the island, was likewise the strangest in configuration, running up sheer from almost every side, and then suddenly cut off at the top like a pedestal to put a statue on. The Hispaniola was rolling scuppers under in the ocean swell. The booms were tearing at the blocks, the rudder was banging to and fro, and the whole ship creaking, groaning, and jumping like a manufactory. I had to cling tight to the backstay, and the world turned giddily before my eyes— For though I was a good enough sailor when there was way on, this standing still and being rolled about like a bottle was a thing I never learned to stand without a qualm or so, above all in the morning, on an empty stomach. Perhaps it was this, perhaps it was the look of the island, with its grey melancholy woods and wild stone spires, and the surf that we could both see and hear foaming and thundering on the steep beach, at least although the sun shone bright and hot, and the shorebirds were fishing and crying all around us, and you would have thought anyone would have been glad to get to land after being so long at sea, my heart sank, as the saying is, into my boots, and from the first look onward I hated the very thought of Treasure Island. We had a dreary morning's work before us, for there was no sign of any wind, "'and the boats had to be got out and manned, "'and the ship warped three or four miles "'round the corner of the island "'and up the narrow passage to the haven "'behind Skeleton Island. "'I volunteered for one of the boats "'when I had, of course, no business. "'The heat was sweltering, "'and the men grumbled fiercely over their work. "'Anderson was in command of my boat, "'and instead of keeping the crew in order, "'he grumbled as loud as the worst. "'Well,' he said with an oath, "'it's not for ever.' I thought this was a very bad sign, for up to that day the men had gone briskly and willingly about their business, but the very sight of the island had relaxed the cords of discipline. All the way in, Long John stood by the steersman and conned the ship. He knew the passage like the palm of his hand, and though the men in the chains got everywhere more water than was down in the chart, John never hesitated once. "'There is a strong scour with the ebb,' he said, "'and this here passage has been dug out, in a manner of speaking, with a spade.' "'We brought up just where the anchor was in the chart, "'about a third of a mile from each shore, "'the mainland on one side and Skeleton Island on the other. "'The bottom was clean sand. "'The plunge of our anchor sent up clouds of birds "'wheeling and crying over the woods, "'but in less than a minute they were down again, "'and all was once more silent. "'The place was entirely landlocked, buried in woods.' "'the trees coming right down to high-water mark, "'the shores mostly flat, "'and the hilltops standing round at a distance "'in a sort of amphitheatre, one here, one there. two little rivers, or rather two swamps, "'emptied out into this pond, as you might call it, "'and the foliage round that part of the shore "'had a kind of poisonous brightness. "'From the ship we could see nothing of the house or stockade, "'for they were quite buried among trees,' and if it had not been for the chart on the companion, we might have been the first that had ever anchored there since the island arose out of the seas. There was not a breath of air moving, nor a sound but that of the surf booming half a mile away along the beaches and against the rocks outside. A peculiar, stagnant smell hung over the anchorage, a smell of sodden leaves and rotting tree-trunks. I observed the doctor sniffing and sniffing, like someone tasting a bad egg. I don't know about treasure, he said, but I'll stake my wig. There's fever here. If the conduct of the men had been alarming in the boat, it became truly threatening when they had come aboard. They lay about the deck, growling together in talk. The slightest order was received with a black look, and grudgingly and carelessly obeyed. Even the honest hands must have caught the infection, for there was not one man aboard to mend another. Mutiny, it was plain, hung over us like a thundercloud. And it was not only we of the cabin party who perceived the danger. Long John was hard at work going from group to group, spending himself in good advice, and as, for example, no man could have shown a better... He fairly outstripped himself in willingness and civility. He was all smiles to everyone. If an order were given, John would be on his crutch in an instant, with the cheeriest, "'Aye, aye, sir!' in the world. And when there was nothing else to do, he kept up one song after another, as if to conceal the discontent of the rest. Of all the gloomy features of that gloomy afternoon, this obvious anxiety on the part of Long John appeared the worst." We held a council in the cabin. Sir, said the captain, if I risk another order, the whole ship will come about our ears by the run. You see, sir, here it is. I get a rough answer, do I not? Well, if I speak back, pikes will be going in two shakes, and if I don't, Silver will see there's something under that, and the game's up. Now we've only one man to rely on. And who is that? asked the squire. Silver, sir, returned the captain. "'He's as anxious as you and I to smother things up. "'Tis a tiff. He'd soon talk him out of it if he had the chance. "'And what I propose to do is to give him the chance. "'Let's allow the men an afternoon ashore. "'If they all go, why, we'll fight the ship. "'If they none of go, well, then we'll hold the cabin and God defend the right. "'If some go, you mark my word, sir, "'Silver'll bring em aboard again as mild as lambs.' "'It was so decided.' "'Loaded pistols were served out to all the shore men. "'Hunter, Joyce, and Redruth were taken into our confidence "'and received the news with less surprise and a better spirit than we had looked for. "'And then the captain went on deck and addressed the crew. "'My lads,' said he, "'we've had a hot day and are all tired and out of sorts. "'A turn ashore will hurt nobody. "'The boats are still in the water. "'You can take the gigs, and as many as please may go ashore for the afternoon.' "'I'll fire a gun half an hour before sundown.' "'I believe the silly fellows must have thought "'they would break their shins over treasure "'as soon as they were landed, "'for they all came out of their sulks in a moment "'and gave a cheer that started the echo in a faraway hill "'and sent the birds once more "'flying and squalling round the anchorage. "'The captain was too bright to be in the way. "'He whipped out of sight in a moment, "'leaving silver to arrange the party, "'and I fancy it was as well he did so.' Had he been on deck, he could no longer so much as have pretended not to understand the situation. It was as plain as day. Silver was the captain, and a mighty rebellious crew he had of it. The honest hands, and I was soon to see it proved that there were such on board, must have been very stupid fellows. Or rather, I suppose the truth was this, that all hands were disaffected by the example of the ringleaders, only some more, some less, and a few being good fellows in the main, could neither be led nor driven any further. It is one thing to be idle and skulk, and quite another to take a ship and murder a number of innocent men. At last, however, the party was made up, six fellows were to stay on board, and the remaining thirteen, including Silver, began to embark. Then it was that there came into my head the first of the mad notions that contributed so much to save our lives, If six men were left by silver, it was plain our party could not take and fight the ship, and since only six were left, it was equally plain that the cabin party had no present need of my assistance. It occurred to me at once to go ashore. In a jiffy, I had slipped over the side and curled up in the foresheets of the nearest boat, and almost at the same moment she shoved off. No one took notice of me, only the bow oar, saying, "'Is that you, Jim? Keep your head down?' "'but Silver from the other boat looked sharply over "'and called out to know if that were me, "'and from that moment I began to regret what I had done. "'The crews raced for the beach, "'but the boat I was in having some start "'and being at once the lighter and the better manned, "'shot far ahead of her consort, "'and the bow had struck among the shoreside trees, "'and I had caught a branch and swung myself out "'and plunged into the nearest thicket, "'while Silver and the rest were still a hundred yards behind. "'Jim! Jim!' I heard him shouting, but you may suppose I paid no heed. Jumping, ducking, and breaking through, I ran straight before my nose till I could run no longer. Chapter 14 The First Blow I was so pleased at having given the slip to Long John that I began to enjoy myself and look around me with some interest on the strange land that I was in. I had crossed a marshy tract full of willows, bulrushes, and odd outlandish swampy trees, and I had now come out upon the skirts of an open piece of undulating sandy country about a mile long, dotted with a few pines and a great number of contorted trees, not unlike the oak in growth, but pale in the foliage like willows. On the far side of the open stood one of the hills with two quaint craggy peaks shining vividly in the sun. I now felt for the first time the joy of exploration. The isle was uninhabited. My shipmates I had left behind, and nothing lived in front of me but dumb brutes and fowls. I turned hither and thither among the trees. Here and there were flowering plants unknown to me. Here and there I saw snakes, and one raised his head from a ledge of rock and hissed at me with a noise not unlike the spinning of a top. Little did I suppose that he was a deadly enemy, and that the noise was the famous rattle— Then I came to a long thicket of these oak-like trees, live or evergreen oaks I heard afterwards they should be called, which grew low along the sand like brambles, the boughs curiously twisted, the foliage compact like thatch. The thicket stretched down from the top of one of the sandy knolls, spreading and growing taller as it went, until it reached the margin of the broad reedy fen, through which the nearest of the little rivers soaked its way into the anchorage, The marsh was steaming in the strong sun, and the outline of the spyglass trembled through the haze. All at once there began to go a sort of bustle among the bulrushes. A wild duck flew up with a quack, another followed, and soon over the whole surface of the marsh a great cloud of birds hung screaming and circling in the air. I judged at once that some of my shipmates must be drawing near along the borders of the fen, nor was I deceived, for soon I heard the very distant and low tones of a human voice, which, as I continued to give ear, grew steadily louder and nearer. This put me in a great fear, and I crawled under cover of the nearest live oak, and squatted there, hearkening as silent as a mouse. Another voice answered, and then the first voice, which I now recognised to be Silver's, once more took up the story, and ran on for a long while in a stream, only now and again interrupted by the other. By the sound they must have been talking earnestly and almost fiercely, but no distinct word came to my hearing. At last the speakers seemed to have paused and perhaps to have sat down, for not only did they cease to draw any nearer, but the birds themselves began to grow more quiet and to settle again to their places in the swamp. And now I began to feel that I was neglecting my business, that since I had been so foolhardy as to come ashore with these desperadoes, the least I could do was to overhear them at their councils, and that my plain and obvious duty was to draw as close as I could manage under the favourable ambush of the crouching trees. I could tell the direction of the speakers pretty exactly, not only by the sound of their voices, but by the behaviour of the few birds that still hung in alarm above the heads of the intruders. Crawling on all fours, I made steadily but slowly towards them, till at last, raising my head to an aperture among the leaves, I could see clear down into a little green dell beside the marsh, and closely set about with trees, where Long John Silver and another of the crew stood face to face in conversation. The sun beat full upon them. Silver had thrown his hat beside him on the ground, and his great smooth blonde face, all shining with heat, was lifted to the other man's in a kind of appeal.
1: "'Mate!'
0: He was saying, It's because I thinks gold dust of you. Gold dust, and you may lay to that. If I hadn't took to you like pitch, do you think I'd have been here a warning of you? Old up, you can't make nor mend. It's to save your neck that I'm a-speaking, and if one of the wild uns knew it, where'd I be, Tom? Now tell me where'd I be? Silver, said the other man and I observed he was not only red in the face, but spoke as hoarse as a crow, and his voice shook, too, like a taut rope. "'Silver,' says he, "'you're old and you're honest, or as the name for it. And you've money, too, which lots of poor sailors hasn't. And you're brave, or I'm mistook. And will you tell me you'll let yourself be led away with that kind of a mess of swabs? Not you. As sure as God sees me, I'd sooner lose my hand. If I turn again my duty—' and then all of a sudden he was interrupted by a noise. I had found one of the honest hands. Well, here at that same moment came news of another. Far away out in the marsh there arose, all of a sudden, a sound like the cry of anger, then another on the back of it, and then one horrid, long-drawn scream. The rocks of the spyglass re-echoed it a score of times. The whole troop of marsh-birds rose again, darkening heaven with a simultaneous whirr, and long after that death yell was still ringing in my brain, silence had re-established its empire, and only the rustle of the redescending birds and the boom of the distant surges disturbed the languor of the afternoon. Tom had leaped at the sound, like a horse at the spur, but Silver had not winked an eye. He stood where he was, resting lightly on his crutch, watching his companion like a snake about to spring. "'John!' said the sailor, stretching out his hand. "'Hands off!' cried Silver, leaping back a yard, as it seemed to me, with the speed and security of a trained gymnast. "'Hands off if you like, John Silver,' said the other. "'It's a black conscience that can make you fear to me. "'But in Evans' name, tell me, what was that?' "'That!' Returned Silver, smiling away but warier than ever, his eye a mere pinpoint in his big face, but gleaming like a crumb of glass. "'That? Oh, I reckon that'll be Alan.' And at this point Tom flashed out like a hero. "'Alan?' he cried. "'Then rest his soul for a true seaman. And as for you, John Silver, long you've been a mate of mine, but you're mate of mine no more. If I die like a dog, I'll die in my duty.' "'You've killed Alan, have you? "'Kill me too if you can, but I defies you.' "'And with that this brave fellow turned his back directly on the cook "'and set off walking for the beach. "'But he was not destined to go far. "'With a cry John seized the branch of a tree, "'whipped the crutch out of his armpit, "'and sent that uncouth missile hurtling through the air. "'It struck poor Tom point foremost, "'and with stunning violence right between the shoulders in the middle of his back.' His hands flew up, he gave a sort of gasp, and fell. Whether he were injured much or little, none could ever tell. Like enough to judge from the sound, his back was broken on the spot. But he had no time given him to recover. Silver, agile as a monkey, even without leg or crutch, was on the top of him next moment, and had twice buried his knife up to the hilt in that defenceless body. From my place of ambush I could hear him pant aloud as he struck the blows. I do not know what it rightly is to faint, but I do know that for the next little while the whole world swam away from before me in a whirling mist, silver and the birds and the tall spyglass hilltop going round and round and topsy-turvy before my eyes, and all manner of bells ringing and distant voices shouting in my ear. When I came again to myself, the monster had pulled himself together, his crutch under his arm, his hat upon his head, Just before him lay Tom motionless upon the sward, but the murderer minded him not a whit, cleansing his blood-stained knife the while upon a wisp of grass. Everything else was unchanged, the sun still shining mercilessly on the steaming marsh and the tall pinnacle of the mountain, and I could scarce persuade myself that murder had been actually done and a human life cruelly cut short a moment since before my eyes. But now John put his hand into his pocket— "'brought out a whistle, and blew upon it "'several modulated blasts that rang far across the heated air. "'I could not tell, of course, the meaning of the signal, "'but it instantly awoke my fears. "'More men would be coming. "'I might be discovered. "'They had already slain two of the honest people. "'After Tom and Alan, might not I come next?' "'Instantly I began to extricate myself "'and crawl back again with what speed and silence I could manage "'to the more open portion of the wood.' As I did so, I could hear hails coming and going between the old buccaneer and his comrades, and this sound of danger lent me wings. As soon as I was clear of the thicket, I ran as I have never ran before, scarce minding the direction of my flight so long as it led me from the murderers, and as I ran, fear grew and grew upon me until it turned into a kind of frenzy. Indeed, could anyone be more entirely lost than I? When the gun fired, how should I dare to go down to the boats among those fiends, still smoking from their crime? Would not the first of them who saw me wring my neck like a snipe's? Would not my absence itself be an evidence to them of my alarm, and therefore of my fatal knowledge? It was all over, I thought. Good-bye to the Hispaniola. Good-bye to the squire, the doctor, and the captain. There was nothing left for me but death by starvation or death by the hands of the mutineers. All this while, as I say, I was still running, and without taking any notice I had drawn near to the foot of the little hill with the two peaks, and had got into a part of the island where the live oaks grew more widely apart and seemed more like forest trees in their bearing and dimensions. Mingled with these were a few scattered pines, some fifty, some nearer seventy feet high. The air, too, smelt more freshly than down beside the marsh. And here— a fresh alarm brought me to a standstill with a thumping heart. Chapter 15 The Man of the Island From the side of the hill, which was here steep and stony, "'a spout of gravel was dislodged, "'and fell rattling and bounding through the trees. "'My eyes turned instinctively in that direction, "'and I saw a figure leap with great rapidity "'behind the trunk of a pine. "'What it was, whether bear or man or monkey, "'I could in no wise tell. "'It seemed dark and shaggy. "'More I knew not, "'but the terror of this new apparition brought me to a stand. "'I was now, it seemed, cut off upon both sides.' Behind me the murderers, before me this lurking nondescript, and immediately I began to prefer the dangers that I knew to those I knew not. Silver himself appeared less terrible in contrast with this creature of the woods, and I turned on my heel, and looking sharply behind me over my shoulder, began to retrace my steps in the direction of the boats. Instantly the figure reappeared, and making a wide circuit, began to head me off. I was tired at any rate, But had I been as fresh as when I rose, I could see it was in vain for me to contend in speed with such an adversary. From trunk to trunk the creature flitted like a deer, running manlike on two legs, but unlike any man that I had ever seen, stooping almost double as it ran. Yet a man it was, I could no longer be in doubt about that. I began to recall what I had heard of cannibals. I was within an ace of calling for help, but the mere fact that he was a man, however wild, had somewhat reassured me, and my fear of silver began to revive in proportion. I stood still, therefore, and cast about for some method of escape, and as I was so thinking, the recollection of my pistol flashed into my mind. As soon as I remembered I was not defenceless, courage glowed again in my heart, and I set my face resolutely for this man of the island, and walked briskly towards him. He was concealed by this time behind another tree-trunk, "'but he must have been watching me closely, "'for as soon as I began to move in his direction "'he reappeared and took a step to meet me. "'Then he hesitated, drew back, came forward again, "'and at last, to my wonder and confusion, "'threw himself on his knees "'and held out his clasped hands in supplication. "'At that I once more stopped. "'Who are you?' I asked. Bing Gunn!' he answered, "'and his voice sounded hoarse and awkward like a rusty lock. I'm Paul Ben Gunn, I am, and I haven't spoke with a Christian these three years. I could see now that he was a white man like myself, and that his features were even pleasing. His skin, wherever it was exposed, was burnt by the sun, even his lips were black, and his fair eyes looked quite startling in so dark a face. Of all the beggar men that I had seen or fancied, he was the chief for raggedness.' He was clothed with tatters of old ship's canvas and old sea-cloth, and this extraordinary patchwork was all held together by a system of the most various and incongruous fastenings, brass buttons, bits of stick, and loops of tarry gaskin. About his waist he wore an old brass-buckled leather belt, which was the one thing solid in his whole accoutrement. Three years,' I cried. "'Were you shipwrecked?' "'Nay, mate,' said he. "'Marooned!' "'I had heard the word and I knew it stood for a horrible kind of punishment "'common enough among the buccaneers "'in which the offender is put ashore with a little powder and shot "'and left behind on some desolate and distant island. "'Marooned! Three years ago,' he continued, "'and lived on goats since then and berries and oysters. "'Wherever a man is, says I, a man can do for himself.' "'But, mate, my heart is sore for Christian diet. "'You mightn't happen to have a piece of cheese about, you know. "'No, well, many's the long night I've dreamed of cheese, "'toasted, mostly, and woke up again. "'And here I were.' "'If ever I can get aboard again,' said I, "'you shall have cheese by the stone.' All this time he had been feeling the stuff of my jacket, smoothing my hands, looking at my boots, and generally, in the intervals of his speech, showing a childish pleasure in the presence of a fellow creature. But at my last words he perked up into a kind of startled slyness. "'If ever you could get aboard again,' says you, he repeated. Why, "'Why now? Who's to hinder you?' "'Not you, I know.' "'was my reply. "'And right you was,' he cried. "'Now you, what do you call yourself, mate?' "'Jim,' I told him. "'Jim, Jim,' says he, quite pleased, apparently. "'Well, now, Jim, I've lived that rough as you'd be ashamed to hear of. "'Now, for instance, you wouldn't think i had had a pious mother to look at me?' "'He asked. "'Why, no, not in particular,' I answered. "Ah, well,' said he, "'but I had—' "'remarkable pious, and I was a civil, pious boy, "'and could rattle off my catechism that fast "'as you couldn't tell one word from another. "'And here's what it come to, Jim, "'and it begun with chuck farthing on the blessed greystones. "'That's what it begun with. "'But it went further than that, "'and so my mother told me and predicted the old she did, "'the pious woman. "'But it were providence that put me here.' I've thought it all out in this here lonely island, and I'm back on piety. You don't catch me tasting rum so much, but just a thimbleful for luck, of course, the first chance I have. I'm bound I'll be good, and I see the way to. And Jim, looking all round him and lowering his voice to a whisper, I'm rich! I now felt sure that the poor fellow had gone crazy in his solitude, and I suppose I must have shown the feeling in my face, for he repeated the statement hotly. "'Rich! rich!' I says. "'And I'll tell you what, I'll make a man of you, Jim. "'Oh, Jim, you bless your stars, you will. "'You was the first that found me.' And at this there came suddenly a lowering shadow over his face, and he tightened his grasp upon my hand and raised a forefinger threateningly before my eyes. "'Now, Jim, you tell me true. "'That ain't Flint's ship.' "'At this I had a happy inspiration. "'I began to believe that I had found an ally, "'and I answered him at once. "'It's not Flint's ship, and Flint is dead, "'but I'll tell you true as you ask me. "'There are some of Flint's hands aboard. "'Worse luck for the rest of us.' "'Not a man with one leg,' he gasped. ''Silver?'' I asked. ''Ah! Ah! Silver!'' says he. ''That were his name! ''He's the cook and the ringleader too!'' He was still holding me by the wrist, and at that he gave it quite a ring. ''If you were sent by Long John,'' he said, ''I'm as good as pork and I know it. But where was you, do you suppose?'' I had made my mind up in a moment, and by way of answer told him the whole story of our voyage and the predicament in which we found ourselves. He heard me with the keenest interest, and when I had done he patted me on the head. "'You're a good lad, Jim,' he said, "'and you're all in a clove hitch, ain't you? "'Well, you just put your trust in Ben Gunn. "'Ben Gunn's the man to do it. "'Would you think it likely now that your squire would prove a liberal-minded one in case of help?' Him being in a clove as you remark?' "'I told him the squire was the most liberal of men.' "'Aye, but you see,' returned Ben Gunn, "'I didn't mean giving me a gate to keep "'and a suit of livery clothes and such. "'That's not my mark, Jim. "'What I mean is, would he be likely to come down "'to the tune of, say, one thousand pounds out of money "'that's as good as a man's own already?' "'I am sure he would,' said I. As it was, all hands were to share. "'And a passage home?' he added, with a look of great shrewdness. "'Why,' I cried the squire's a gentleman, and besides, if we got rid of the others, "'we should want you to help work the vessel home.' "'Ah!' said he, "'and so you would.' And he seemed very much relieved. "'Now, I'll tell you what,' he went on, "'so much I'll tell you, and no more. "'I were in Flint's ship when he buried the treasure. "'E and six along, six strong seamen.' "'They was ashore nigh on a week, "'and us standing off and on in the old walrus. "'One fine day up went the signal, "'and he had come flint by himself in a little boat, "'and his head done up in a blue scarf. "'The sun was getting up, "'and mortal white he looked about the cut-water. "'But there he was, you mind, "'and the six all dead, dead and buried. "'How he done it, not a man aboard us could make out. "'It was battle, murder, and sudden death, "'leastways, him against all six. Billy Bones was the mate, Long John he was quartermaster, and they asked him where the treasure was. Ah, says he, you can go ashore if you like and stay, he says, but as for the ship, she'll beat up for more by thunder. That's what he said. Well, I was in another ship three years back, and we sighted this island. Boys, said I, here's Flint's treasure, let's land and find it. The captain was displeased at that, but my messmates were all of a mind and landed. Twelve days they looked for it, and every day they had the worst word for me, until one fine morning all hands went aboard. As for you, Benjamin Gunn, says they, here's a musket, and they says, and a spade and pickaxe. You can stay here and find Flint's money for yourself, they says. Well, Jim, three years have I been here, and not a bite of Christian diet from that day to this. "'But now you look here, look at me. "'Do I look like a man before the mast?' "'No,' says you. "'Nor I weren't neither,' I says. "'And with that he winked and pinched me hard. "'Just you mention them words to your squire, Jim,' he went on. "'Nor he weren't neither. "'That's the words.' Three years he were the man o' this island, light and dark, fair and rain, and sometimes he would maybe think upon a prayer, says you, and sometimes he would maybe think of his old mother, so be as she was alive, you'll say, but the most part of guns time, this is what you will say, the most part of his time was took up with another matter. And then you'll give him a nip, like I do. And he pinched me again in the most confidential manner, "'Then,' he continued, "'then you'll up, and you'll say this. "'Gun is a good man, you'll say, and he puts a precious sight more confidence, "'a precious sight, mind that, in a gentleman born and in these gentlemen of fortune, "'having been one hisself.' "'Well,' I said, "'I don't understand one word that you've been saying, "'but that's neither here nor there, for how am I to get on board?' No," said he, "'that's the hitch for sure. "'Well, there's my boat "'that I made with my two hands. "'I keep it under the white rock. "'If the worst come to the worst, "'we might try that after dark.' Hi he broke out. "'What's that?' "'For just then, "'although the sun had still an hour or two to run, "'all the echoes of the island awoke "'and bellowed to the thunder of a cannon. "'They have begun to fight!' I cried. "'Follow me!' "'And I began to run towards the anchorage.' "'my terrors all forgotten, while close at my side "'the marooned man in his goat-skins trotted easily and lightly. "'Left, left,' says he. "'Keep to your left hand, mate, Jim, under the trees with you. "'There's where I killed my first goat. "'They don't come down here now. "'They're all mast-headed on them mountains for fear of Benjamin Gunn. "'Ah, and there's the cemetery. "'Cemetery,' he must have meant. "'You see the mounds?' "'I come here and prayed nows and thens, "'when I thought maybe a Sunday would be about due. "'It weren't quite a chapel, but it seemed more solemn-like. "'And then,' says you, "'Ben Gunn was short-handed. "'No chaplain, nor so much as a Bible and a flag, you says.' "'And so he kept talking as I ran, "'neither expecting nor receiving any answer. "'The cannon-shot was followed after a considerable interval "'by a volley of small arms. "'Another pause.' "'and then, not a quarter of a mile in front of me, "'I beheld the Union Jack flutter in the air above a wood. "'Part 4. The Stockade. "'Chapter 16. Narrative Continued by the Doctor. "'How the ship was abandoned. "'It was about half-past one, three bells in the sea phrase, "'that the two boats went ashore from the Hispaniola.' The captain, the squire, and I were talking matters over in the cabin. Had there been a breath of wind, we should have fallen on the six mutineers who were left aboard with us, slipped our cable, and away to sea. But the wind was wanting, and to complete our helplessness, down came Hunter with the news that Jim Hawkins had slipped into a boat and was gone ashore with the rest. It never occurred to us to doubt Jim Hawkins, but we were alarmed for his safety.' "'With the men in the temper they were in, "'it seemed an even chance if we should see the lad again. "'We ran on deck. "'The pitch was bubbling in the seams. "'The nasty stench of the place turned me sick. "'If ever a man smelt fever and dysentery, "'it was in that abominable anchorage. "'The six scoundrels were sitting grumbling "'under a sail in the forecastle. Ashore we could see the gigs made fast, "'and a man sitting in each, "'hard by where the river runs in. "'One of them was whistling Lily Bolero.' "'Waiting was a strain, and it was decided that Hunter and I should go ashore with the jolly-boat in quest of information. "'The gigs had leaned to their right, but Hunter and I pulled straight in, in the direction of the stockade, upon the chart. "'The two who were left guarding their boats seemed in a bustle at our appearance. "'Lybalero stopped, and I could see the pair discussing what they ought to do.' Had they gone and told Silver, all might have turned out differently, but they had their orders, I suppose, and decided to sit quietly where they were and hark back again to Lili There was a slight bend in the coast, and I steered so as to put it between us. Even before we landed, we had thus lost sight of the gigs. I jumped out and came as near running as I durst, with a big silk handkerchief under my hat for coolness' sake, and a brace of pistols ready primed for safety. I had not gone a hundred yards when I reached the stockade. This was how it was. A spring of clear water rose almost at the top of a knoll. Well, on the knoll, and enclosing the spring, they had clapped a stout log-house fit to hold two score of people on a pinch, and loopholed for musketry on either side. All round this, they had cleared a wide space, and then the thing was completed by a paling six feet high, without door or opening, too strong to pull down without time and labour, and too open to shelter the besiegers. The people in the log-house had them in every way. They stood quiet in shelter, and shot the others like partridges. All they wanted was a good watch and food, for short of a complete surprise, they might have held the place against a regiment. What particularly took my fancy was the spring, for though we had a good enough place of it in the cabin of the Hispaniola, with plenty of arms and ammunition, and things to eat, and excellent wines, There had been one thing overlooked. We had no water. I was thinking this over when there came ringing over the island the cry of a man at the point of death. I was not new to violent death. I have served His Royal Highness the Duke of Cumberland and got a wound myself at Fontenoy, But I know my pulse went dot and carry one. Jim Hawkins is gone, was my first thought. It is something to have been an old soldier, but more still to have been a doctor.' There is no time to dilly-dally in our work, and so now I made up my mind instantly, and with no time lost returned to the shore and jumped on board the jolly-boat. By good fortune Hunter pulled a good oar. We made the water fly, and the boat was soon alongside, and I aboard the schooner. I found them all shaken, as was natural. The squire was sitting down, as white as a sheet, thinking of the harm he had led us to, the good soul, and one of the six forecastle hands was little better.' "'There is a man,' says Captain Smollett, nodding towards him, "'new to this work. "'He came nigh and fainting, Doctor, when he heard the cry. "'Another touch of the rudder, and that man would join us.' "'I told my plan to the Captain, and between us we settled on the details of its accomplishment. "'We put old Redruth in the gallery, between the cabin and the forecastle, "'with three or four loaded muskets and a mattress for protection. "'Hunter brought the boat round under the stern port,' "'and Joyce and I set to work loading her with powder tins, muskets, bags of biscuits, kegs of pork, a cask of cognac, and my invaluable medicine-chest. "'In the meantime the squire and the captain stayed on deck, and the latter hailed the coxswain, who was the principal man aboard. "'Mr. Hans,' he said, "'there are two of us, with a brace of pistols each. "'If any one of you six make a signal of any description, that man's dead.' They were a good deal taken aback, and after a little consultation one and all tumbled down the fore-companion, thinking no doubt to take us on the rear. But when they saw Redruth waiting for them in the sparred gallery, they went about ship at once, and a head popped out again on deck. "'Down, dog!' cries the captain, and the head popped back again, and we heard no more for the time of these six very faint-hearted seamen." By this time, tumbling things in as they came, we had the jolly-boat loaded as much as we dared. Joyce and I got out to the stern port, and we made for shore again as fast as oars could take us. This second trip fairly aroused the waters along shore. Lily Belero was dropped again, and just before we lost sight of them behind the little point, one of them whipped ashore and disappeared. I had half a mind to change my plan and destroy their boats, "'but I feared that Silver and the others might be close at hand, "'and all might very well be lost by trying for too much. "'We had soon touched land in the same place as before, "'and set to provision the blockhouse. "'All three made the first journey heavily laden, "'and tossed our stores over the palisade. "'Then, leaving Joyce to guard them, one man to be sure, "'but with half a dozen muskets, "'Hunter and I returned to the jolly-boat "'and loaded ourselves once more. "'So we proceeded, without pausing, to take breath, till the whole cargo was bestowed, when the two servants took up their position in the blockhouse, and I, with all my power, sculled back to the Hispaniola. That we should have risked a second boat load seems more daring than it really was. They had the advantage of numbers, of course, but we had the advantage of arms. Not one of the men ashore had a musket, and before they could get within range for pistol-shooting, we flattered ourselves we should be able to give a good account of half a dozen at least.' The squire was waiting for me at the stern window, all his faintness gone from him. He caught the painter and made it fast, and we fell to loading the boat for our very lives. Pork, powder and biscuit was the cargo, with only a musket and a cutlass apiece for the squire and me and Redruth and the captain. The rest of the arms and powder we dropped overboard in two fathoms and a half of water, so that we could see the bright steel shining far below us in the sun on the clean, sandy bottom." By this time the tide was beginning to ebb, and the ship was swinging round to her anchor. Voices were heard faintly hallowing in the direction of the two gigs, and though this reassured us for Joyce and Hunter, who were well to the eastward, it warned our party to be off. Redruth retreated from his place in the gallery and dropped into the boat, which we then brought round to the ship's counter, to be handier for Captain Smollett. "'Now, men,' said he, "'do you hear me?' There was no answer from the forecastle. It's to you, Abram Grey. It's to you I'm speaking. Still no reply. Grey, resumed Mr. Smollett a little louder, I am leaving this ship, and I order you to follow your captain. I know you are a good man at bottom, and I dare say not one of the lot of you's as bad as he makes out. I have my watch here in my hand. I give you thirty seconds to join me in. There was a pause. "'Come, my fine fellow,' continued the captain. "'Don't hang so long in stays. "'I'm risking my life and the lives of these good gentlemen every second.' "'There was a sudden scuffle, a sound of blows, "'and out burst Abram Gray with a knife cut on the side of the cheek, "'and came running to the captain like a dog to the whistle. "'I'm with you, sir,' said he. "'And the next moment he and the captain had dropped aboard of us, "'and we had shoved off and given way. "'We were clear out of the ship.' But not yet ashore in our stockade. Chapter 17 Narrative Continued by the Doctor The Jolly Boat's Last Trip This fifth trip was quite different from any of the others. In the first place, the little gallipot of a boat that we were in was gravely overloaded. Five grown men and three of them Trelawney, Redruth, and the captain over six feet high was already more than she was meant to carry. Add to that the powder, pork and bread-bags. The gunwale was lipping astern. Several times we shipped a little water, and my breeches and the tails of my coat were all soaking wet before we had gone a hundred yards. The captain made us trim the boat, and we got her to lie a little more evenly. All the same we were afraid to breathe. In the second place the ebb was now making, a strong rippling current running westward through the basin, and then southern and seaward down the straits by which we had entered in the morning. Even the ripples were a danger to our overloaded craft, but the worst of it was that we were swept out of our true course and away from our proper landing-place behind the point. If we let the current have its way, we should come ashore beside the gigs where the pirates might appear at any moment. "'I cannot keep her head for the stockade, sir,' said I to the captain. I was steering while he and Redruth, two fresh men, were at the oars.' The tide keeps washing her down. Could you pull a little stronger?" "Not without swamping the boat," said he. "You must bear up, sir, if you please; bear up until you see you're gaining." I tried, and found by experiment that the tide kept sweeping us westward until I had laid her head due east, or just about right angles to the way we ought to go. "We'll never get ashore at this rate," said I. "If it's the only course that we can lie, sir, we must even lie it," returned the captain. "'We must keep upstream. "'You see, sir,' he went on, "'if once we drop to Leeward of the landing-place "'it's hard to say where we should get ashore, "'besides the chance of being boarded by the gigs. "'Whereas the way we go, the current must slacken, "'and then we can dodge back along the shore.' "'The current's less already, sir,' said the man grey, "'who was sitting in the foresheets. "'You can ease her off a bit.' "'Thank you, my man,' said I, "'quite as if nothing had happened.' for we had all quietly made up our minds to treat him like one of ourselves. Suddenly the captain spoke up again, and I thought his voice was a little changed. The gun, said he. I have thought of that, said I, for I made sure he was thinking of a bombardment of the fort. They could never get the gun ashore, and if they did, they could never haul it through the woods. Look astern, doctor, replied the captain we had entirely forgotten the long nine, and there to our horror were the five rogues busy about her getting off her jacket, as they called the stout capolin cover under which she sailed. Not only that, but it flashed into my mind at the same moment that the round shot and the powder for the gun had been left behind, and a stroke with an axe would put it all into the possession of the evil ones abroad. Israel was Flint's gunner, said Grey hoarsely. At any risk we put the boat's head direct for the landing-place. By this time we had got so far out of the run of the current that we kept steerage way even at our necessarily gentle rate of rowing, and I could keep her steady for the goal. But the worst of it was that with the course I now held we turned our broadside instead of our stern to the Hispaniola and offered a target like a barn door. I could hear as well as see that brandy-faced rascal Israel Hands. "'plumping down a round shot on the deck. "'Who's the best shot?' asked the captain. "'Mr. Trelawney, out of the way,' said I. "'Mr. Trelawney, will you please pick me off one of these men, sir? "'Hands, if possible,' said the captain. "'Trelawney was as cool as steel. "'He looked to the priming of his gun. "'Now,' cried the captain, "'easy with that gun, sir, or you'll swamp the boat.' All hands, stand by to trimmer when he aims. The squire raised his gun. The rowing ceased, and we leaned over to the other side to keep the balance, and all was so nicely contrived that we did not ship a drop. They had the gun by this time slewed round upon the swivel, and Hans, who was at the muzzle with the rammer, was in consequence the most exposed. However, we had no luck, for just as Trelawney fired, down he stooped, The ball whistled over him, and it was one of the other four who fell. The cry he gave was echoed not only by his companions on board, but by a great number of voices from the shore, and looking in that direction I saw the other pirates trooping out from among the trees and tumbling into their places in the boats. "'Here come the gigs, sir,' said I. "'Give way, then,' cried the captain. "'We mustn't mind if we swamp her now. If we can't get ashore, all's up.' "'Only one of the gigs is being manned, sir,' I added the crew of the other most likely going round by shore to cut us off. "'They'll have a hot run, sir,' returned the captain. "'Jack ashore, you know. It's not them, I mind. It's the round shot. "'Carpet-bowls my lady's maid couldn't miss. "'Tell us, squire, when you see the match, and we'll hold water.' "'In the meanwhile we had been making headway at a good pace for a boat so overloaded, "'and we had shipped but little water in the process. "'We were now close in.' Thirty or forty strokes, and we should beach her, "'for the ebb had already disclosed a narrow belt of sand "'below the clustering trees. "'The gig was no longer to be feared. "'The little point had already concealed it from our eyes. "'The ebb-tide, which had so cruelly delayed us, "'was now making reparation and delaying our assailants. "'The one source of danger was the gun. "'If I durst,' said the captain, "'I'd stop and pick off another man.' "'but it was plain that they meant nothing should delay their shot. "'They had never so much as looked at their fallen comrade, "'though he was not dead, and I could see him trying to crawl away. "'Ready!' cried the squire. "'Hold!' cried the captain, quick as an echo. "'And he and Redroof backed with a great heave "'that sent her stern bodily under water. "'The report fell in at the same instant of time. "'This was the first that Jim heard, "'the sound of the squire's shot not having reached him.' "'Where the ball passed, not one of us precisely knew, "'but I fancy it must have been over our heads, "'and that the wind of it may have contributed to our disaster. "'At any rate, the boat sank by the stern, "'quite gently, in three feet of water, "'leaving the captain and myself facing each other on our feet. "'The other three took complete headers "'and came up again drenched and bubbling. "'So far there was no great harm, no lives were lost, "'and we could wade ashore in safety, "'but there were all our stores at the bottom.' and to make things worse, only two guns out of five remained in a state of service. Mine I had snatched from my knees and held over my head, by a sort of instinct. As for the captain, he had carried his over his shoulder by a bandolier, and like a wise man, lock uppermost. The other three had gone down with the boat. To add to our concern, we heard voices already drawing near us in the woods along shore— "'and we had not only the danger of being cut off from the stockade "'in our half-crippled state, but the fear before us "'whether if Hunter and Joyce were attacked by half a dozen "'they would have the sense and conduct to stand firm. "'Hunter was steady, that we knew. "'Joyce was a doubtful case, a pleasant, polite man for a valet "'and to brush one's clothes, but not entirely fitted for a man of war. "'With all this in our minds we waded ashore as fast as we could, "'leaving behind us the poor jolly-boat,' and a good half of all our powder and provisions. Chapter 18 Narrative Continued by the Doctor End of the First Day's Fighting We made our best speed across the strip of wood that now divided us from the stockade, and at every step we took the voices of the buccaneers rang nearer. Soon we could hear their footfalls as they ran, and the cracking of the branches as they breasted across a bit of thicket. I began to see we should have a brush for it in earnest, and looked to my priming. "'Captain,' said I, Trelawney is the dead shot. Give him your gun. His own is useless.' They exchanged guns, and Trelawney, silent and cool as he had been since the beginning of the bustle, hung a moment on his heel to see that all was fit for service. At the same time, observing Grey to be unarmed, I handed him my cutlass.' "'It did all our hearts good to see him spit in his hand, "'knit his brows, and make the blade sing through the air. "'It was plain from every line of his body "'that our new hand was worth his salt. Forty paces farther we came to the edge of the wood "'and saw the stockade in front of us. "'We struck the enclosure about the middle of the south side, "'and almost at the same time seven mutineers, "'Job Anderson, the boatswain at their head, "'appeared in full cry at the southwestern western corner.' They paused as if taken aback, and before they recovered, not only the squire and I, but Hunter and Joyce from the blockhouse, had time to fire. The four shots came in rather a scattering volley, but they did the business. One of the enemy actually fell, and the rest, without hesitation, turned and plunged into the trees. After reloading, we walked down the outside of the palisade to see to the fallen enemy. He was stone dead, shot through the heart. We began to rejoice over our good success, when just at that moment a pistol cracked in the bush, a ball whistled close past my ear, and poor Tom Redruth stumbled and fell his length on the ground. Both the squire and I returned the shot, but as we had nothing to aim at, it is probable we only wasted powder. Then we reloaded and turned our attention to poor Tom. The captain and Grey were already examining him, and I saw with half an eye that all was over. I believe the readiness of our return volley had scattered the mutineers once more, for we were suffered without further molestation to get the poor old gamekeeper hoisted over the stockade and carried groaning and bleeding into the log house. Poor old fellow! He had not uttered one word of surprise, complaint, fear, or even acquiescence from the very beginning of our troubles till now, when we had laid him down in the log house to die. He had lain like a Trojan behind his mattress in the gallery. He had followed every order silently, doggedly, and well. He was the oldest of our party by a score of years, and now sullen, old, serviceable servant, it was he that was to die. The squire dropped down beside him on his knees and kissed his hand, crying like a child. "'Be I going, doctor?' he asked. "'Tom, my man,' said I, "'you're going home.' "'I wish I had a lick at them with the gun first, he replied. "'Tom,' said the squire, "'say you'll forgive me, won't you?' "'Would that be respectful like from me to you, squire?' was the answer. "'Howsoever, so be it. Amen.' "'After a little while of silence, "'he said he thought somebody might read a prayer. "'It's the custom, sir,' he added apologetically. And not long after, without another word, he passed away. "'In the meantime the captain, whom I had observed to be wonderfully swollen about the chest and pockets, "'had turned out a great many various stores—the British colours, a Bible, a coil of stoutish rope, "'pen, ink, the log-book, and pounds of tobacco. "'He had found a longish fir-tree lying felled and trimmed in the enclosure— and with the help of Hunter he had set it up at the corner of the log-house where the trunks crossed and made an angle, then climbing on the roof he had with his own hand bent and run up the colours. This seemed mightily to relieve him. He re-entered the log-house and set about counting up the stores as if nothing else existed. But he had an eye on Tom's passage for all that, and as soon as all was over came forward with another flag and reverently spread it on the body. "'Don't you take on, sir,' he said, shaking the squire's hand. "'All's well with him. "'No fear for a hand that's been shot down in his duty to captain and owner. "'It mayn't be good divinity, but it's a fact.' "'Then he pulled me aside. "'Dr. Livesey,' he said, "'in how many weeks do you and squire expect the consort?' "'I told him it was a question not of weeks, but of months, "'that if we were not back by the end of August, "'Blandly was to send to find us.' "'but neither sooner nor later. "'You can calculate for yourself,' I said. "'Why, yes,' returned the captain, scratching his head, "'and making a large allowance, sir, for all the gifts of Providence, "'I should say we were pretty close-hauled.' "'How do you mean?' I asked. "'It's a pity, sir, we lost that second load. "'That's what I mean,' replied the captain. "'As for powder and shot, we'll do, but the rations are short, very short. "'So short, Dr. Livesey, that we're perhaps as well without that extra mouth.' and he pointed to the dead body under the flag just then with a roar and a whistle a round shot passed high above the roof of the log house and plumped far beyond us into the wood oh said the captain blaze away you little enough powder already my lads at the second trial the aim was better and the ball descended inside the stockade scattering a cloud of sand but doing no further damage captain said the squire "'The house is quite invisible from the ship. "'It must be the flag they are aiming at. "'Would it not be wiser to take it in?' "'Strike my colours! cried the captain. "'No, sir, not I!' "'And as soon as he had said the words, I think we all agreed with him, "'for it was not only a piece of stout, seamanly good feeling, "'it was good policy besides, and showed our enemies that we despised their cannonade. "'All through the evening they kept thundering away.' "'ball after ball flew over or fell short or kicked up the sand in the enclosure, "'but they had to fire so high that the shot fell dead and buried itself in the soft sand. "'We had no ricochet to fear, "'and though one popped in through the roof of the log-house and out again through the floor, "'we soon got used to that sort of horseplay and minded it no more than cricket. "'There is one good thing about all this,' observed the captain. "'The wood in front of us is likely clear. "'The ebb has made a good while.' "'Our stores should be uncovered. "'Volunteers to go and bring in pork.' Gray and Hunter were the first to come forward. "'Well armed, they stole out of the stockade, "'but it proved a useless mission. "'The mutineers were bolder than we fancied, "'or they put more trust in Israel's gunnery, "'for four or five of them were busy carrying off our stores "'and wading out with them to one of the gigs that lay close by, "'pulling an oar or so to hold her steady against the current.' Silver was in the stern sheets in command, and every man of them was now provided with a musket from some secret magazine of their own. The captain sat down to his log, and here is the beginning of the entry: "Alexander Smollett, master; David Livesey, ship's doctor; Abraham Grey, carpenter's mate; john Trelawney, owner. John Hunter and Richard Joyce, owner's servants, landsmen, being all that is left faithful of the ship's company, with stores for ten days at short rations, came ashore this day and flew British colours on the log house in Treasure Island. Thomas Redruth, owner's servant, landsman, shot by the mutineers. James Hawkins, cabin boy. And at the same time I was wondering over poor Jim Hawkins' fate. A hail on the land side. Somebody ailing us, said Hunter, who was on guard. Doctor, Squire, Captain! Hello, Hunter, is that you? came the cries. And I ran to the door in time to see Jim Hawkins, safe and sound, come climbing over the stockade. This ends Disc 3.